I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Marika Vita, the wine director of the Ritz-Carlton Central Park South and also the head of her own consulting company, which is called Vita et Fee. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So you grew up in Toronto. I did. I left when I was 23, so I did go to college there. And you were in broadcast for a little while. I was. I have um, a background in radio and television and film. Worked quite a bit in commercial broadcasting and also directed and produced some of my own little productions when I was in school. And I won a few awards doing that. I actually had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, I always thought I would be in that business. Uh, But interestingly enough, I worked for a film director who was a big wine buff. And that's where that was kind of the genesis for me of getting involved in wine. And then I also, in order to pay my way through college, always worked in restaurants and did something in the wine program in the restaurants in Toronto. And so you were actually working with wine while you were working your way through college? I was. I worked for a number of bars. Uh, I went to Ryerson University, and I always had three jobs of some sort when I was in school. And one of them was always restaurant-related because I knew I could make the money bartending. But I also would make sure that whatever context I was working in the restaurant, that I was doing something wine-centric because it was a passion of mine. Part of that was growing up in a with a Hungarian father, and we, you know, I had wine when I was young. I'd have a little bit of wine mixed with water. So it was always kind of part of my life. Was there a Hungarian community in Toronto? Yes, a big one. Uh, in fact, I miss that. You don't see it, ironically, you don't see it as much in New York, and I know there's an, there is a Hungarian community in New York, but in, in Toronto, to me, it was prolific. You know, when I was growing up, there were probably 10 to 15 different Hungarian restaurants. You know, my father came over in 1956 during the revolution, and most other people did then too. Um, Toronto's a hugely cosmopolitan city, and especially with those Eastern European countries. And uh, yeah, I, I, um, I miss the food, and uh, they have a, an event every year called Toronto's Caravan, where you actually get a passport and you go to different countries and you try the cuisine and you taste the wines and you see them do their, you know, their cultural dances. And I Hungarian danced for many years, but I don't speak the language because my mother's not Hungarian. So, But it sounds like the film producer guy was more of a classics person, like more Bordeaux. And- totally. 
I have a traditional wine background, and it's interesting when I'm asked about what I love, I really am not very trendy. It's, I'm not saying I don't like those wines that are trendy, but I tend to stick to the classics. Yeah, there's a comfort level there. There's also, uh, you know, I, I kind of cut my teeth on Bordeaux and Burgundy. And back then, because this is the late 80s, that was what it was about. You know, nobody was talking about the Jura or Corsica. You ended up moving to the States. I did. I did after college. Um, kind of. I didn't really work in wine right away. I did some projects that were unrelated, but then I realized that, that I really wanted to get back into wine, and that's when I worked in auction. And that was an eye-opening thing for me, working with Morell & Company and Sotheby's, because that kind of experience, I, I highly recommend anybody wanting to learn about wine to go and do that for a year, because you will see things you will never see again. In terms of the wines? In terms of the wines, and it's just a unique part of the business, uh, a lot of younger sommeliers will say to me, well, I never get to taste stuff like that, you know? And, and I mean, those are expensive wines. But I feel like you're also involved with auctions when it was a real go time to be involved with auctions. Absolutely. At that time in the late 90s, you know, Screaming Eagle would come in and at $125 a bottle or whatever they were selling it for if you were on the mailing list and it would be selling for $2,000 a bottle. So yeah, the cult wines were were aptly named. And it was a highly allocated market back then. Right. Very, very different now. And that's, that's something that I feel as a buyer, I don't, there's very few things that I absolutely desperately need that I couldn't find a replacement for, or I couldn't find something else. And obviously there are many variables that go into that in terms of how big is your list and, you know, what are the requirements, but I think that's a huge change. Just that the fact that there's so many more options, but there's also just not so much that you have to have at any given time. Or we're more knowledgeable and we can promote something that's equally suitable. So you were in auctions in New York before 9-11, which was, as we said, a go time, but also kind of a, a time that came to an end a little bit. Yes, it, it, was, it definitely was the glory days. People were spending money in that arena, left, right, and center. And it was a very sought-after market. I think I was very fortunate to be able to be involved during that time. And you know, like I said, the things that I got to see, really glad for that, that experience. I guess you also lived through 9-11 then, because you were in New York. I did. I was um, extremely pregnant. And uh, that was the only reason why I wasn't coming in that day. So uh, Cooper, my oldest, I, I definitely call him my savior because I would have been coming in on the path right into the World Trade Center at, at about the time the first tower came down. You know, that was a defining moment in my life. Uh, I didn't live in New York, obviously, in, this, in the city proper. And I had to really think about what I was going to do with a, an, an infant. And did I want to come back and forth during, you know, after that time? So I think it was a very defining moment for me in trying to figure out what was going to be next. What did you decide to do? Well, I stayed home for the first little bit. I think part of it was I was uh, in shock. You know, we lost a lot of clients and, you know, being a new mother, I was fortunate I didn't have to work immediately after he was born, but I always knew that I would work. 
And uh, so for the first year, I didn't. I did stay home, and then I um, had a conversation with a manager from the Ritz Carlton in Philadelphia, and that's when I started getting the idea of being a part-time sommelier. Uh, but then I got pregnant again, uh, as life would happen, and decided not to start a job. It's interesting because many. Uh, women have different opinions about this, about, okay, well, pregnancy is a normal part of life. If I had owned my own company then, if it had been my restaurant, I might have felt differently about going through a pregnancy. But starting a job, being visibly pregnant and promoting wine, obviously, and not necessarily drinking, obviously, we're tasting, but I wasn't quite sure how a company would receive that. So I, I waited until my second son was born, and then I actually went back on a part-time basis when he was f- four months old. There are several things that I admire about you. One is your ability to communicate and connect with people. But one of the others that I really admire about you is the fact that you have two kids, but you've developed a career in wine that's continued on past having the kids while you have to look after them at the same time, which I think is really difficult. It's definitely been, hey, it's not been a straight line. Uh, I didn't necessarily ever choose to become a full-time sommelier. It was for very challenging circumstances that I did. And and certainly there are plenty of women out there doing much more than I in terms of, you know, juggling everything. But I do think the wine world in particular, and I also don't live proper in New York City, so trying to figure out balance is key. And it's an ongoing process. I never get to the point where I feel like, hmm, I'm balanced. But I, over the last six years in particular, I feel like I'm much closer to it. It's really understanding what do you want your life to look like. I often get asked, well, how come you didn't work for different restaurant groups? And I never wanted to be a full-time sommelier. It was really not part of my plan. When my kids were young, I planned on working part-time if we could afford it. Uh, Just because it's... It's very challenging when you have no family local. There needs to be one parent that's kind of on call. And usually it's the one making less money. <laughs> so that that way it was never part of my plan. But we were a family that got really hit hard during 2008, along with half of America. Uh, very challenging. Lost our house. My husband was out of work. Uh, it was, it was um, desperate measures. And I think that you know, often I pinch myself now when I have younger female sommelier friends of mine that will go, how did you get to do this? Because this is kind of unorthodox how you've kind of made, and I'm like, taking something that is a serious challenge in your life and turning it around. Yeah, I would say I've, I've definitely done that. But it also does explain why I never had this big passion about wanting to work in all the restaurants of New York City. And, and, and I completely commend and respect people that do, but it really wasn't part of my personal plan. If someone were in a similar situation, what do you think you would tell them? It's hugely personal, right, in terms of uh, what I, I think, and, that, and that's where I'd start. I really think you have to, again, the paint your picture on what do you want your life to look like. When I was a full-time sommelier, I, I mean, part of me loved it because I loved wine and I loved engaging with people. It's a strength, I believe, that I have, and I was very guest-centric. For me, knowing about the wine was important, but it wasn't as important as taking care of the guest and communicating effectively. 
it's interesting watching some of the a lot of the sommeliers that I respect, and they're always extremely effective communicators. Because at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about making sure that guest is walking out of their throat. And, and it could be a product that you can't stand, but that shouldn't matter. So I think that the advice I would give is really to sit down and paint a picture of what do you want your life to look like? For me, it was getting to the point where I wanted to do 80% of what I loved and only 20% of the things I didn't like, like updating a wine list. You know, being a, a full-time psalm to a certain degree, when you take the people part and the wine tasting part out of it, is minutia and boring to a certain degree. You know, you get to the point where you're like, I don't want to do this again. So I knew that I... I still wanted to obviously engage with people and taste wine, and I wanted to keep learning, but I, I wanted to get rid of some of that minutia and some of the drudgery of it. So that was a big impetus for me to realize I don't want to be a full-time sommelier. Is there a way I can do this part-time? And it's, it's not easy, and I, not a lot of people are doing it. I, I guess I got a little lucky. Uh, the Ritz-Carlton was like downsizing their restaurant. They didn't want a full-time wine director anymore. I didn't want to be one. And that was a great opening for me to kind of say, how about I do this and we come up with a theme and I can do a little bit more to promote the whole hotel? Because the great irony, right, is when you're working 80 hours a week in a restaurant, you have no time to do those extra things. And those extra things are possibly what's most important. I think what people often refer to as the big challenge of their job in, in the restaurant side is all the hours. And that's anybody, not just uh, someone trying to look after a family and bring up two kids, but most people complain about the hours. But I feel like you found a way which is somewhat unusual to carve out a personal life. If someone else were looking to do that, what would be important though? First of all, you have to be ready to let go of the rope. Because I think psychologically, it's very, very hard to do. Uh, consulting's not easy for many reasons. One of them being you have to really learn how to manage your money because you'll have certain months, years that are better than others. Uh, and you're paying, you know, if you're doing your 1099, you, you have to, <laughs> accounting is real fun. Uh, and it's not my strength. So those are, again, some, some basic challenges. You have to be ready and, and equipped to take care of that. Also, psychologically, people often, look at consultants and think like, you, you know, the whole jack of all trades, master of none. And I've had people point blank say that to my face, you know, that you're not doing this full time anymore. You really, it doesn't count kind of thing. And I, I've had to get rid of the white noise. I've had to say, okay, that may be true to that person, but I, I have to figure out how to live my life authentically, figure out a way to do this. And I still like doing this. So I don't think the industry allows for it a lot. So you have to carve it yourself and you have to be willing to make sacrifices. So when I went back to the Ritz, obviously, from a, a monetary standpoint, I was going to take a huge pay hit. So there had to be money coming in from other areas. Uh, connections are really, really key. You have to be comfortable with putting yourself out there. Uh, and that's hard. That was even hard for me. And I'm no wallflower, but I'm 
I struggle with the shameless self-promotion. That's the Canadian side. Uh, and but it's, but it's important. It's important that you stand up for yourself and you recognize what your accomplishments are because nobody else is going to do it for you and somebody will be right behind you. So I had to make myself make a list and kind of say, okay, what is it that I've accomplished and how can I promote this? And that's, you know, I started getting private clients uh, that I met through various sources where I'm like, yes, I can actually buy wine for you. And, and that's part of my business. I also uh, would put myself out there for like, you know, your association, like Wines of Provence and, and uh, anybody that had heard me speak at a dinner or whatever would say, would you be interested in doing this? You have to utilize, you, you really have to utilize your network. Uh, and that, again, effective communication and being comfortable with putting yourself out there. Because I know a lot of people who work in consulting but primarily what they do is restaurants, and the restaurants are a funnel for their consulting. So they meet people through working on the floor that they strike up a rapport with, the person trusts them, and then they go to work for that person on the side. But often those people are also quite busy because they're working full-time in a restaurant. Right. So what you're saying is if you're going to do the opposite, if you're going to put the consulting business first, you're not going to be on the floor all the time. You really have to figure out ways to get yourself out there so that you can make those connections, whether it be teaching courses or looking for media interviews, podcasts, perhaps. or, or you know. But, you know, you have to look extra hard for that access, I guess. You do. And it, and it, and you never, I mean, possibly one of the downsides is you, you never stop looking, right? You, when you're a full-time employee, there is some level of comfort. Whereas when you're consulting, you're always looking. You know, it's like, it's like having peripheral vision. You kind of never stop. But you also have to do that the right way. And I think that that's the other point is that there's still being integrous, like the whole idea of realizing, yes, I have two kids to put through college. And that is a significant difference. Again, what do you want your life to look like? Because people's priorities are different, right? Some people want to focus on the real esoteric side of wine, and they can afford to do that. Or, Or maybe they can't, but they don't care. I don't have that choice. So Again, very, very, very important. Can't stress it enough. You know what? What are the things that you have to accomplish? And for me, there's a there's a definite monetary aspect to this. And even full time sommelier work, besides the burnout aspect of it, there are very few places I could count on one hand where I think pay exceptionally well. And it seems like those have been declining in favor of people working more. Levy, you're dead on, especially because after 2008 and, you know, luxury hotel business is not what it was. That's a huge challenge. Uh, and it's a fact. But I also see that there's not so many consultants in New York. And I spent a long time trying to figure out why. And what I came to the conclusion is, is that there's so many restaurant groups in New York that they hire someone full time to look after all the restaurants as opposed to a standalone restaurant that employs someone part-time to be a consultant. So it's almost difficult to find a consultant job in New York more so than it might be in Connecticut or something like that, where, you know, there is more independent restaurants. Uh, You have to make a case for it, right? I mean, it has to, uh, it has to work for the restaurant too, to realize that they would have to pay a full-time person a lot more money, right? So there's that, which I think is, is, a big point to make. But for me, it's also a mindset of 
restaurants, you know, it's like the old thing about telecommuting, right? There are still that feeling of if you're not there, you're not working. And we, we've gotten better over the years. I mean, many industries have, but the restaurant industry is probably not one of them. I mean, the, the PR that I do for the dinners, I'm largely doing from home. I'm not doing that when, while I'm at the hotel. When I'm at the hotel, I'm running around and dealing with wine issues. So, you know, I am getting that work done, which is ongoing because it's, it's emails and it's phone conversations and it's, but you're not on site. And once you get particularly good at something, it, you can do it a lot faster, right? So that, that's another uh, factor to make. But these are points that you can make to a restaurant. I'd, I'd love to see the day, especially for, you know, most women that I know when, when they have a child, they go to the dark side, right? We, we go to sales because it's a better schedule. Uh, and if we were allowed to have, if we were maybe even job sharing, right? I loved being on the floor two, three nights a week. It's like the perfect job part-time because it's just enough to feel like you're out there, but it's not so much that you get to the point where you're hating it or you're, you know, I mean, for me, I had that moment, you know, people are obviously gaga about wine and what sommeliers do. And I remember a group of women coming into the hotel when I was there full time and just, just gushing, just saying, it's so cool what you do. It's so neat that you're a woman. And you know, all the, all these compliments and all these great thoughts. And all I could think of was I got nothing. I, I, I'm so drained by the time I get home. I'm not present for my kids and it's an issue. But if I had had somebody to job share with, and actually before BLT market closed, I was on the floor two nights a week and it was, it was heaven. It, you felt like it was just the right amount. Uh, and that's a hard thing to find. I mean, I think one of the issues is that hiring sommeliers is not really transparent anyway. It's kind of a back channel uh, word of mouth thing. It's not like getting hired as a waiter where you see an ad and you go to it. Usually those kind of jobs, there's some big problem if there's an ad for a sommelier that they didn't fill through personal networks or career networks. And so because it's already not really on paper, I feel like it's even harder to find that part-time gig because it's not really advertised that way. That's true. Most people aren't looking for it. And also, most obviously, most restaurants aren't seeking it. But the great irony is it ends up happening anyway because people's lives evolve, right? And so then when you're faced with... So when your kids are really young... Uh, it's actually not that hard to be a psalm because you're with them during the day. You can designate X amount of hours and they don't really care when they see you because they, you know, their schedule is, it's not a structured, I'm going to school schedule, right? It becomes really hard at school age because you do need to be around at night and you, uh, you know, when I first started being a sommelier part-time, I loved it because it was, it was like from Elmo to Onafile and I felt adult, you know, it was neat to dress up and, you know, I didn't have puke on me and it was fun, right? And I was getting paid. I was getting to dress up and talk about wine and I was getting paid. So it was a real ideal thing for me part-time. You're right. They're not going to promote it that way. It is going to be a word of mouth thing. It is one of those things where you would have to kind of go behind the scenes to kind of seek that. And it is done, but it's just not, because if you think about it, right, so if you got seven days a week, so there are those two days. So it's possible in a busy enough restaurant to be able to get a gig like that for the, the full-time psalm that's going to be off. But 
it's not prolific by any means. I think what ends up happening is that because they don't see it as an option, a lot of people end up getting pushed out of the industry and going to do something else, whether it's going to back to school or going into sales, like you said, mm -hmm. or um, just becoming a someone that's you know married and doesn't work in the wine business anymore or doing an office job somewhere. So they, they basically leave the restaurant side quite often just because they don't see a real option for themselves that's apparent. But what's cool about you is that with that same set of circumstances, you communicated to the people that could employ you to do this, how it would be in their best interests. And you communicated it well enough that they saw that, which that's also a set of skills to be able to do that, to manage up that way. It helped that I had been there full time. Right. So I really knew the lay of the land. And w when you think about restaurants, right, and you think about management and uh, there's no continuity. And that's a big problem, you know, even even from, a, you know, when you talk to your, your, your salespeople working with the distributor, oh, I mean, this is the third person they've had this year, and how that just, it breaks the chain, right? You're, you're getting into a groove, and then all of a sudden it stops. And that's another big argument that I used. I know what's going on here. I designed half of this. I inherited half of it. I designed half of it. I know when it needs to be reduced. I know, you know, so there's, as a consultant, there's no 401k. There's no health care. I mean, you that employer has no overhead. I mean, so that that's another biggie. Uh, whenever anybody's looking to cut, they're going to cut the biggest salary, right? So I think actually there is a market out there for it. it again, I, I don't think it's ever going to be prolific. But if you state your case, and also circumstances have to be right, if BLT market was still there, I would not be able to be doing this. That's that's just fact, right? Because that was a, a um, extremely busy, big celebrity chef restaurant. It was a different uh, circumstance. So uh, you know that worked. For, you know, there's always luck in there, some somewhere, right? It, it seemed to work for. It was symbiotic. But recognizing an opportunity is also creating that, right? Absolutely, and and I and that's possibly the key to life, right? Just to be able to have your eyes and ears open and be willing to kind of, again, say, I have this idea. I think it might work for both of us. Uh, the, the fun thing about all of that is it, it opened me up to be able to do things that would actually help, you know, promote the Ritz-Carlton and from a public relations standpoint and doing these wine dinners that I would have never had time to do as a full-time. And I wouldn't have wanted to do them because I was exhausted. So from an em employer side, being able to see that, be recognizing that and saying, wow, I, you're right, that nobody wants to do a wine dinner after they've just done 80 hours. But I feel like then the challenge on, on your part is to remember and to follow through to pay yourself enough. Because I think when you're having multiple conversations about how you get money. It's so much more complicated than just the one conversation about negotiating your salary and then you get that salary each time. Right. Here you're dealing with a lot of small transactions, you know, that may repeat. It may be that that client hires you again, you know, the next month. But I feel like the onus is on you often to kind of remember that your work is valuable and you need to, like, you need to charge other people for the downtime too. Levy, it's so important, and I'm asked that question a, like a thousand times, and I can't say it enough, charge double, you know, especially if it's a one-time hit. And if they say no, be prepared to walk away. Because if they say to you it's five hours, it's 20. 
it's 20 by the time you add up your time running around doing it. And also there's an aspect of I'm 25 years experience at this point. And that is an important factor. You know, it's not something that, uh, and okay, we could talk about credentials too. And, and I've had to, you know, have that sort of come to Jesus moment where I'm, I'm not going to be a master psalm or, or a master of wine. And it's, it's been hard for me to make that decision because I feel like you're, there's a lot of pressure to do that. And I, I have so many MSs and M MWs that I look up to, that I respect, that are mentors and uh, just deep, deep respect. But for me, I had to come to that point of, you know, first of all, can I be a master mom first before, you know, because I, I, I struggle with that. I struggle, I think any parent does, about feeling they just don't do enough. And I did miss a lot of years when my boys were younger. And for me, turning 48 this year, when my youngest finally gets to college, I'll be 53. And I'll be honest... Um, I think after 45, your years become like dog years for your memory. <laughs> I don't retain things the way that I used to. And even though you have this wealth of knowledge from doing something for 25 years, for me to like get up and orally do theory, and again, I hail anybody that can do it, I'm just not sure I could. But I think that's one of your real strengths is that even though the Psalm community was changing, becoming more competitive, more youthful, people working longer hours, people doing things that are more like managing other Psalms, people becoming um, kind of public faces for their restaurant, all of that's happened since the 90s, you know, changed. so it's something you've witnessed over your career. The smart part about you is you realize that you didn't need to compete with certain aspects of these things that were getting more popular, you could carve out your own niche. So you didn't say like, well, I'm not so good at that, but I'm going to force myself to go and work from my weak side. You said, well, this is what I can do. This is what's possible. This is what I want. How can I build that? Which is maybe a better long-term life strategy. Because as you said, you're approaching 50. And when I look around, I don't see a lot of people working on the floor who are right. approaching 50 in either sex, whether they have no kids or kids. Agreed. It is definitely a young person's business and, and uh, certainly being on the floor full time. I mean, I know you can find those management jobs where you're managing more than one properties and that can be a different game. But but generally speaking, yes, it's it's uh, it's youthful, and it's part of why I still like it. I you know it, it, because that is you know you're in the game, but there are practical reasons that uh, prevent me from being able to do that full time. Uh, yes, there was an insight for me to to sort of capitalize on my strengths, and and I had to, and I'm I'm so well aware of my weaknesses. Well, I think that's that's key, though. <laughs> yes, it is. You can't. It, I think a lot of life is. What do I don't want to do, right? So, I mean, I, I don't want to be spending my time doing this. And that is once you keep saying that to yourself and you, you, you create situations. You know, with the Phenomenal Femme Dinner Series, with meeting all these wonderful women, I've created consulting positions for meeting these women. Again, capitalizing on my strength. Well, what do I want to do? Well, I'm, I love public speaking. It's, again, going back to the whole broadcasting thing. That was something that I have been doing all my life. And, you know, your minor acting. And I always say to my mom, you know, this theater arts course has really paid off. There is an element where 
I always wanted to do that. And I always knew that that was something that I, I was pretty good at. So why am I not doing more of that? Having me sit at a computer is, it's not healthy for anyone. Of course, we all have to do that, but it's not something that I wanted to be doing 80% of the time. So I started to take that idea of, I want to present, I want to do wine education. Who else needs that? And that's where, for me, the possibilities started opening up. Um, there is probably a, an even better business model out there, and I'll, I'll keep in search of it. But I do find now that most of my work is doing things that I like doing and that I feel I'm good at. That being said, I will also say, make sure you challenge yourself. So I am not the best wine geek in the world, and I will admit it. I don't, I don't necessarily want to teach myself. So that that was the other thing is I knew that I was always going to be a little bit more consumer-based. I mean, not always. I do staff trainings and obviously things like that, but there were people that are way better at that than I am. And so uh, also looking at the pool of talent around you, I'm like, yeah, I could try to achieve that, but it's definitely not my strength. I'm not, I'm not hardcore, want to have my, my nose in a book studying for for 12 hours a day. I do it because you have to do it to stay on top of it. But again, realizing what your strengths are and focusing on them is pretty key. And it's actually worked for me. I, I stopped apologizing for not knowing how to do that. And I started saying, yeah, but I, I do this pretty well. So maybe I just keep doing it. And I think intuitively you knew it was a relationship business. I don't know who said this quote, but I love it. If you want to get where you're going, you have to help others get where they're going. And I fervently believe that. And, I, and it's, it's something that it's really easy to do the me, me, me thing. And listen, you have to do that. You have to, again, you have to support a family or you have, you know, you have to keep a roof over your head. So it's important to, you know, the old oxygen mask has to go on you first and then your child. You, but I believe we're put on this hurt to help others. It's part of the best way to get out of yourself is to go help somebody else and to realize that these are the things that make life special. The wine business in New York City can be pretty doggy dog. And now that we have social media and I'm hopelessly bad at it. <laughs> Again, you have to you have to build a business, but you also have to be kind of good at at self-promotion. And I've had to get better at that. I, I admit it, it didn't come naturally. And that for me, incorporating and understanding that uh, how I was treated at 25 by a, a woman my age, I knew I was never going to do that to a younger woman in the business. That for me, it was like, it's, it is, I know how that felt. And it's really, really important to give back. Unfortunately, I think the restaurant business is full of negative examples like that where you're like, oh, I'm not going to end up like that person, you know, and that becomes the, the learning method. But it's somewhat unfortunate that it's like that, as opposed to being like, oh, I really gravitate towards that thing or that style. I, I think, Levy, again, you learn things by going through difficult times. And the more, you know, I, I put myself out there and I talk to people that have, have been through some serious, you know, crises in their life, they're the ones that are always given back or understanding that that's part of life. And sometimes when things are really, really challenging, I just make sure that I'm volunteering extra at the women's shelter because, again, the best way to get out of yourself is to kind of go help somebody else. But it is really important to remember that. 
I think, especially in New York City. And I think it's interesting that you do have that side that is selfless and helping other people. But what I found in the restaurant business is that people would say, well, I know you don't want to do 80% of this stuff, but you're the wine person and you owe it to the customer, the team, the thing to do all the stuff that you don't want to do because you get the perk of drinking wine all day was usually the how it came out, whether it was in those exact words or not. So you're so lucky to drink wine every day. Go ahead and change those menus or whatever. And you kind of said, no, I'm comfortable enough with my ability to give back and help other people. That's a big part of my personality, but I don't need to be making myself unhappy, which is a fine line to recognize and walk. Being good to others doesn't mean that you can't say no or that this doesn't work for me. And I think that's a, you're right, there's a fine line there because people don't necessarily know how to balance that. Often the people that are giving get taken advantage of. And and I certainly have, but I've also learned from those circumstances. And again, you realize that's how you grow, right? It's like the, the old, sorry, the old wine analogy is, you know, we don't plant grapes in fertile soils, right? They're in poor soils because they have to dig deep. I mean, that's what happens to a person. You know, when you have to struggle, you figure out some things and figuring them out the hard way is often the best way. So have you had positive role models that have come along that you've said, yeah, that person really helped me clarify something about what I wanted to achieve? I absolutely adore listening to Madeline Trafon talk. I just, again, tremendous presenter. Her ability to communicate it flabbergasts me. That's how good I think she is because it's real. In addition to her being obviously incredibly knowledgeable, it's real and it's funny. And, you know, also just the whole idea of self-doubt, particularly with women, we find it hard to give ourselves credit. It took me forever. That's something that I've learned a lot from Madeline, too. She's talked about, you have to talk about your accomplishments because nobody else is going to talk about them for you. And and again, there's a way to do it, but it is important to do it. I mean, I could see how not being encouraged to take credit for things could be a, kind of a double whammy when it comes to having to self-promote for your own consulting business. Because mm-hmm. you're not, again, you're not just getting that straight paycheck, you know, every month, no matter what, you're having to go out there and, and get new clients or new opportunities. So I could see where having to say, no, I'm proud of this thing that I did. I'm going to say that I did it, as opposed to kind of keep it on the under, is important. It is important. It's it's, it's, it's really important because you have to make a living, right? So at the end of the day, if you're not doing at least some of that, uh, <laughs> consulting can be a real tough choice. Uh, it's, it's not been, that's not been an easy thing for me. I've had to get better at that. And I've also had to realize that, you know, you've, you have to ignore the haters. You have to ignore the people that will say, well, you're not doing this full time. So you really, you know, you're not really in it anymore. And I'm like, you know what? I, I've done this. I have done this. And, and there is something to be said for paying your dues in certain areas, right? And, and moving forward. And I mean, the celebrity chef is not going to be you know, on the line 24 hours. And you'd like to think that they've earned that position. And I think as 
with sommeliers, you can say the same thing. It's a, it's a grueling job. Everybody thinks that, okay, it's just fun. You're tasting. No, I mean, I would be up and down those stairs 40 times a night carrying, because it was a big list. We couldn't store everything upstairs. It's physically demanding. Uh, and you're thinking on your feet, you know, something's 86 on the list and you're like, okay, I've got 10 other wines in my, in my head that are, it's, you're in it. Uh, and once you've done that, that experience doesn't leave you, you know, I mean, you apply it to other things and, and that, that's been interesting for me is, okay, how do I take this experience? And even though I'm not doing exactly the same thing, but how does it transfer? So that has been an interesting path for me to kind of figure that out. And I've, I've made some mistakes doing that too. I've realized, hey, doing this as a consulting job doesn't work for me. And I'm probably not going to make this a priority. In highly specialized fields, typically people are valued for more experience. So if I look for a doctor or a lawyer, usually, you know, these are things that took a lot of study and people had to really get into their field and get the basics down. But then after they've all done that, I start to look at the length of time that they've been doing it as an indicator of high quality. Like I want my doctor to have been doing this for a decade or more. Like I don't want the new guy. But in the sommelier world, I feel like a lot of the older experience has been kind of pushed to the margins and often into sales as opposed to being in restaurants. And so I feel like you know, you're a healthy example that's a counterexample of that where someone still has some that experience to give and that perspective to give and that ability to read a room to give, but doesn't feel that they need to save every encounter and be there all the time. Yeah. You, a restaurant will go, well, we can get somebody for half the price and they're younger. They can do these hours. And yeah, it, it's definitely an area where you hope and wish will change where people will start to recognize that this experience really does matter because once you've been through something 40 times, you know how to do it really, really well. And there are less risks involved. Making it look easy is actually pretty hard. It takes experience. So when I look at a map of Manhattan, I feel like Midtown and Higher is pretty open to older restaurant workers. But I feel like Midtown and Lower is less and less that way. So are there other things that if I were strategizing my career, I'm 40 now, so and, and I was Baby. still in <laughs> thank you. And I was still in restaurants. Are there things that I should be strategizing for my own career, whether it's geographic or neighborhood or style of restaurant that is gonna allow me to grow into that job? I think great question. There's no doubt that there is a stigma for what part of town that you're in and in terms of being a sommelier and where you're a sommelier and the acceptance level. Uh, you do need to, most hotels obviously are union in New York City, and you, if you're going to go that route, you, you have to know that it can be a, a challenging route from the standpoint of the way things are done uh, because there's a lot of legal uh, issues that are associated with that. Key thing to remember there, though, is it's how it's done. So you're not going to change that. And you have to be able to walk in knowing that I'm going to make this work the best way I possibly can. Because uh, sometimes you're dealing with, you know, how to train a, you know, a staff that may not be as interested in wine, right? So how do we make that a little more exciting for them? Or uh, how do we make this, you know, incentivize it? You know, that is, these are important factors. 
it's way cooler, obviously, to be below 14th Street. I always say I'm I'm not part of the cool club, and uh, I've had to kind of come to those terms. But I. I think if you're being a sommelier and you're wanting to be a sommelier, because I, as you as you heard from my story, I, things didn't work out the way, you know, I, I kind of came in as a full-time wine director reluctantly. And and the silver lining in, in that is it's exactly what's made me stronger and better at what I do. So, but I think if you're walking into the industry as a young person that wants to be a sommelier, I say do it all. Because that gives you the experience, right? So if you want to be, you know, in Tribeca and being able to just work in an all-Italian list, and then you can strengthen your area in Italian wines and, and you know, do everything, you know, funky and different uh, that, I mean, I can't do that. You know, I can pick certain regions and usually they're the traditional ones, right? That I think is it's invaluable to be able to do that. And then, and then, yeah, take a swing uptown and do some like, you know, maybe a more of a fine dining place where you're understanding that kind of service and that kind of clientele. The more experience you have in that area, I think it's never going to hurt you. And it's going to prepare you for whatever's next. I don't find a lot of people who say that because usually what I find is that people have real focused blinders on about what's cool or what's not or what they should be doing. And they're not like, oh, I want to become well-rounded. They're like, I want to do what's cool. I don't know if that's too critical of what I'm seeing in the younger generation, but I I encounter that. I encounter people who don't want to taste certain categories of wine and I encounter people who don't want to go to certain areas of town I encounter less the type of person who's like, oh, let's see. Is that cool or not? I don't know. I'm, let's go try it for a while and make up my mind. Like, I almost never encounter that. I, I almost never do too, Levy. <laughs> um, I made that my niche. Like, that. that is, for me, I got so tired of, okay, well, we can only have grower champagnes. And I love grower champagnes. And I have both on my list. But I'd be a fool to think that at the Ritz-Carlton Central Park, that most of the champagne sold is not going to be a big champagne house. You have to know who you're buying for. Um, you also, I think, again, depending on your age and experience in the business, right? When you're young and you're infallible, you can say those things. You know, you can you can say, I'm only going to do this, and I'm sure I did it. As, as you, I want to say as you grow up, because certainly there are people that are my age or older that still feel that way. But I do think understanding that wine is a business. And again, it goes back to, I have two kids to put through college. So I'd love to, some people call it selling out. I really don't. I think, I think it's foolish to take away um, all the wines that make certain people walk in that don't want a sommelier comfortable. I, I, I feel strongly about that. I think it can take a long time in a, in a restaurant that only has esoteric, okay, unless you have every staff member incredibly trained for somebody that, I just wanted a basic California Chardonnay, and th- that's not available to them, or how I like Pinot Grigio, you know, and, and there are some places that are, that do that, that have everybody educated and my hat's off to them, but it's a philosophy, and you choose your route. Um, some of mine was chosen for me, and some of it I realize that this actually works best for what I do. Uh, but I think once you're there, over time, 
your wine tastes change, right? Often, you know, people will be in the mood for this for a couple of years and then they'll switch. It's, I think you can apply that to your career too. Circumstances change, you change, all of it, all of it goes into the pot. So do you see strategies that work well for working within the luxury hotel sector? Like this is something that you have a lot of knowledge about because you've worked in different rich properties. And so are there things that work in a hotel environment for a career or for getting things done or for wine that are a little different than normal restaurants? Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're thinking of a hotel career, be prepared to be thinking about doing, you know, more than one outlet. So quite often, you know, you're working for an independent restaurant, right? You're not thinking about the banqueting list or you're not thinking about in-room dining. And for a luxury hotel, in-room dining is huge revenue. Uh, and, you know, you can have a print stay with you and spend $40,000 in in-room dining between food and beverage. So it's, it's a different way of thinking that also caters to what kind of list you're going to have. And for synergistic purposes, you don't really want to have a different list for everything, especially if you're looking to reduce inventory. So that's a really important point. And therefore, if it's stuff that needs to be sold without a sommelier, it needs to be able to sell. So my esoteric on the in-room dining list is going to be much less than it is on the wine list. You have to think in different business strategies and between banqueting, in-room dining, and you know, the Ritz is, this Ritz is a relatively small hotel. There are programs where banqueting is huge. I mean, huge money. Uh, when I consulted at the Essex House, it was like that. That has a very, very big banqueting department. So if you're looking to source your banqueting wines, your costing is extremely important from a volume standpoint. So that was a you know very different organization. What's great about it is you're multitasking within one property. So I think it can be a tremendous wine education, providing the hotel wants to have a, a good wine program, because that's, that's, again, that's a conversation. The downside is you can be dealing people from the corporate side of the hotel that, um, you know, don't really know anything about wine, right? And so you, you have to take that into account. You have to be able to explain it to them and why this is important, even if they don't understand. So like, you know, a director of finance isn't necessarily going to care, but they're always looking at the bottom line. So that's, it's important to realize that, again, you're not going to be dealing with that in the same way in an independent restaurant that already realizes, hey, we have to have an important wine program. Uh, you have to be willing to fight more, I think. Uh, and like I said, it's not, it, it's not what it was either. So I don't know if you, if you remember at one point, every high-end hotel in New York City had a celebrity chef restaurant, right? And very few of them do now. So it's not super cost effective for them to do that because F&B for a lot of hotels doesn't make money the way rooms does. So I'd say if you want to learn more, it, 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 you can never just look at it. I want to do this from a wine standpoint. I think from an organizational standpoint, like I want to learn more about hotels, because then the, the great thing about having that experience is, you know, if you want to go to Dubai or you want to you travel when you're with a big company like that, and you can do that. And, and it's also international recognition. There was always to me when I looked at, you know, in New York City, there's so many obviously wonderful restaurants and the restaurant scene is, it's 
ever, ever changing, right? And what was what's in today is out tomorrow. And um, not a lot of cities have a restaurant scene like New York City, right? So you also have to kind of be comfortable with the fact that, again, it's a midtown hotel. It's not going to have that same draw as like Charlie Bird. I'm not in that scene. So being prepared to understand that I think is important, but always recognize that international acclaim. So if you're looking to change jobs or um, if you're looking for a wine career in another city, uh, which a lot of people do. I know um, a couple of New York Psalms recently that left because they wanted to go raise a family in a, in a city that would be more affordable, right? And if you're in a, a brand like that, it does have, does have some pull. What about travel? How does that fit into your life? So I've been really blessed in the last few years as a consultant getting to go to many different countries. I did none of that while I was a full-time sommelier. There was just no time. If I had a week off, I was I was at home. I was with the kids. I was, you know, so guilt-ridden that there was there's no time for wine travel. Uh, I still limit it. I would like to do uh I mean there's still places I haven't been and I feel badly about that because I think it's such a huge part of our education. Once you're there, right, you really get it. Right? Trying to explain what a galet is, you know, when you're holding one in, in Chateau de Pop is, you know, very different than reading a book on it. Um, so I still have many, many places to go, but I feel hugely blessed in the last six years that I've been able to travel to as many places as I have. And that's a definite perk. Are there specific things that have played into how you've decided to raise your kids that were related to the job? Like, are there things you said, well, we need to look at schools in this way, or we need to think about, you know, this kind of after-school activity or that were related to your work commitments? Like, are there things that made sense? Yes. It's a great question. And it's, it's kind of, um, often all I think about, uh, both my sons are basketball players and, you know, getting to those games and they're, they're now they're at 13 and 15, they're older. But what I've realized is in some ways it's the most important time for me to be there because they've gone from being all conscious to now understanding that, um, my oldest actually said this to me the other night, wow, there's, there's, there's so much dark out there. You know, they're finally getting, I have choices to make and, uh, you don't realize that, you know, when you, when your kids are younger, because you kind of think they're always going to have that level of innocence. And once it starts to go away, that's when the questions start being asked and, and you do need to be around more. I think for me, uh, presence is really important. And, and every time, even if you're not actively doing something with them, you know, the fact that they know that you're there is really important. because it's a, it's almost sensory. You know, they just they just know you're around even if because you're going to be driving them someplace, right? It's a, the needs are different. They don't necessarily want to spend all their time with you, but they want to know that you're there. So for me, I've had to I've had to navigate that carefully. Um because I'm always as a consultant, I'm always looking for more work, right? But certain things are more time-consuming than others. And um, often a lot of those time-consuming things aren't the ones that are the most lucrative. <laughs> so I've had to kind of say, I, I really can't take that on right now. Uh, so that is tough because if one of your other things ends, 
you know, oh, now I'm out another 30 grand or how am I going to make, how am I going to make up for this? And it's, it's an ongoing wheel turning, but I do think it's important to know how you want it to turn. And if it has to turn a little more slowly, then so be it. And I, I have definitely taken hits. I've said, no, this, this isn't worth it for me to do it, or I won't even entertain this because even some months are busier than others, right? So if I'm working for a winery and I'm doing wine education for them, I kind of try to manage that too and say, okay, you get six days a month. So I'll know when I'm traveling. Um, my husband travels too, so we're tag teaming. And yeah, it's it, uh, Levy. It's a that's a constant thought <laughs> that never ever goes away. Or I try to look at their schedule in advance. When are their games? Or what's going on here? And I, you know, not I don't always accomplish it, but I'm I'm certainly better off than when I was full time in a restaurant. Are there skills that you learned in a restaurant that played into your parenting later? Yeah, I mean, multitasking obviously is is a tremendous thing that you learn from being in a restaurant. Being able to read people and understand people, um, I call that that's feeling the wind. You know, you can read your Chapman's book all you want and learn all the specifics, but if you can't walk into a restaurant room and understand that there's a need and know how to fix it, it's kind of tough. Your id is really important in the restaurant business, and I think that. That totally prepares you for life because it's making you think on your feet. And with God knows with kids, it's 80% of what you do. And you still feel behind. But yeah, I think it's it, uh, hugely helpful, uh, the restaurant business, in order to be able to be a parent. Marika Vida knows that choices have to be made in a wine career and for her family. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, Levy, thanks for having me. Marika Vida is the wine director at the Ritz-Carlton Central Park South in Manhattan, as well as the head of her own consulting business, Vida at Fee. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.